and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the Achilles heel to this whole operation, Duncan Nickel. Your cuttings are getting better and better, Duncan. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, it's good to be back, Geordie. What is this? What are we on about? Well, Duncan, Is This Just Fantasy? You and I host ourselves a little book club. Just for two of us, we, um, we give each other a, a book to read, and every two weeks we check in and we discuss that book. So, absolutely right, Geordie, but it's not just about the two of us. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. no. Here, if it's just fantasy, this is a community-driven book club. While we are hosting it, we invite you all to come along too and share your opinions. Bring the biscuits. Oh, yes. And the tea. Duncan pours the tea. So, if you do have an opinion on any of the books that we have covered or are covering, or say we're going to cover, or just fantasy in general, uh, do write in at isthisjustfantasypodcasts at gmail.com. And if we find your opinions interesting, we'll happily read them out on the podcast and get a discussion going. Absolutely. And you mentioned Achilles' heels, Duncan. Oh, I did, Geordie. I did. Because this week we're covering The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. And Duncan has done the impossible. He's broken the hot streak. I think he's finally picked a book that I think we haven't checked in yet, but I think that we both enjoyed a lot. Duncan, is my assessment correct? I mean, on the grounds that you enjoyed it a lot, then yes, we both enjoyed it a lot. We did it. The curse is over. Wow. This was such a... I don't want to say a breath of fresh air, because I don't want to uh, talk negatively of a lot of the books that we've recently covered, but I found this was just a nice step away. The the way this story is written, Mm -hmm. the subject matter... Uh, the focus, even, of the narrative was just so kind of different to the kind of standard fare yeah, absolutely. of the last few books. Yeah, it's so different. Like, um, when I even brought up that we were doing this book, my dad said, is that is that even a fantasy novel? And um, I tell him, yeah, there's there's gods and there's monsters in it. There's, there's a centaur. Uh, of course it's fantasy. That's a bit of a good question, isn't it? Um, where sort of the line falls. Mm-hmm. Now... I'm going to come out and be very honest with people. I am not a historian. I have not studied classical literature. In fact, all my information concerning the Trojan War uh, comes from one great YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to Sarcastic Productions for their amazing work. Overly sarcastic uh, yeah, productions. But I don't know. I've never, I've never read the Iliad or, or the Odyssey. Mm. Um, I've watched some Ray Harryhausen movies about Jason and the Argonauts. But that's about it. Man. You're missing out. There's some really fun stuff in here, especially the Odyssey. And actually, I have to wonder, like, what someone's experience of of reading A Song of Achilles is. Not just from, like, not reading the Iliad, because I haven't read the Iliad, and I love Greek mythology. But not, but having not read the Odyssey, like, you gotta, you gotta be reading through being like, man, this, this minor Odysseus character, he sure comes up a lot. Seems, seems like a bit of a Mary Sue, if you ask me. That's a, a kind of a good point. I think that would actually really colour uh, your experience of this book, you know, whether or not you know more or less about the mythology it's based on. But, Jordi, why don't you kind of expand on that? Um, what is your background to Greek mythology? Oh, I mean, I absolutely love Greek mythology. Like, um, I've been re- learning about it and reading it since I was a little kid. My dad, um, my dad used to read to me from a book of Greek mythology. Um... One which was intermittently appropriate for kids and also not, like, 
like it had a good framing on Zeus, but it was still some suspect stuff in there. And, um, but man, I absolutely adored it. And I had this, the like audiobook of the Odyssey abridged for heaven's sake, of course. Um, and I just listened to it over and over. I absolutely loved these stories so much. It was so full of excitement and adventure and, and, and it's essentially just one gigantic fantasy novel. And surprisingly interconnected, you know, considering the fact that it's not even by a single author or even by a single set of thousand authors and was all carried down by hand and not, sorry, not even by hand, by word of mouth, talked to people and not written down. It's absolutely incredible how interconnected the stories are. So coming from a, I'm going to say, relatively fresh face, where does this fit into the larger sort of Greek mythos? you're someone who say you're coming from i don't know you watch disney's hercules you, you know the gods who they are mm. what does this fit into like the timeline yeah so the, the really interesting thing about greek mythology duncan is that it actually takes place over a really really short period of time i mean accepting things like the creation of the universe which ancient greeks understood to be in the distant 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 past you read the song of achilles you know that characters in it have met Heracles. They, they, they're, they're his old companions. And if you go a little bit further back in time, you're talking about, like, the days of, like, Heracles' grandfathers. You're looking at things like Perseus. And getting further back than that, you're starting to run out of major Greek heroes because they're all descended from one another. They're all relatives and cousins and, and grandparents. So you're talking about, like, Three centuries of, of, of mythos, and then you get to the Trojan War, and it's over. After that, the Trojan War it represents essentially the end of Greece. Ancient Greece, when they came up with these myths, they were talking about the ancient past of, uh, of, of Greece. They were talking about ancient, ancient Greece. Early Bronze Age, even Stone Age Greece. And... And when they get to the Trojan War, they're talking about the end of heroes. When Odysseus hangs up his his hat in the Odyssey and he says, uh, now I'm middle-aged, my days of adventure are over. He's basically talking about like the end of Greece itself. Because after that, you know what follows on from the Odyssey? It's the Aeneid. And the Aeneid is about the founding of Rome. Oh, wow, I did not know that. So this mm. is... This is like the final days of heroes, then. That's right. This is like the last hurrah. I won't call it hurrah. This is the last of a long and bloody and miserable story. But yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that uh, rather than like Heracles going out and defeating the Gigantomachia, the end of heroism is just a bunch of people slugging it out on a field and wasting their time for ten years. Oh, it's. Uh... Puts a spin on the word heroic, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Geordie, you said you loved this book. You said that you read it uh, very quickly. I did. I, I breezed through this in like under a week. Did you Did you get around to anything else before we really jump into Song of Achilles? Um, I've dabbled in some other reading recently. Most of the stuff I've been enjoying recently has been um in, in the world of podcasts. I've been, um, not to, to date this podcast any time, but, um, I've just been following the absolutely crazy stuff of, um, of a trial of Alex Jones. Uh, I've been watching the live streams every day that it's been going on, and it is fucking insane. 
um, entertaining, but dark and uh, absolutely, yeah, buck wild. But when I had time to read, I finally finished up a story I've been trying to finish for a long time. I mentioned in a previous episode, um, in our episode on A Demon in Silver, the audiobook for Children and Time. Do you remember that, Dunk? I, uh, I remember your reference to it. What I didn't say in that episode is that I didn't like the book. I tried really, really hard to, and I, I really did not end up enjoying myself. And it has such a good premise. It's about, it takes place in the far, far, far future. And um, humanity's a space-age civilization, and they're terraforming a planet. They're trying to come up with terraforming. And part of what they plan to do is they create this something called this, this super virus, which is going to genetically alter monkeys, which are going to put on a planet, and cause these monkeys to become super intelligent and evolve hyperfast, like absolutely um, dial up uh, evolution to, to a ridiculous degree. But everything goes wrong. Not only does the mission fail, all of human civilization collapses by complete coincidence. Um, and the monkeys die on their way down. And there's no, there are no monkeys for the macrovirus, or not the macrovirus, that's a thing from Star Trek, um, for this virus to, um, to, to, to glom onto. Except for spiders. The planet oh. has a lot of spider species, and they start to evolve a lot. And half the narrative of the book is spent with the survivors of Earth, in a like civilization spanning ship trying to find a new home and specifically this home this planet and the other half is taken from the perspective of giant super intelligent spiders it's a horror right yeah yeah it's sort of like it's a sort of book where it's like it doesn't try to be scary it just is the fact that like it's about spiders fighting armies of somewhat intelligent ants is just gross and the last part of the book is definitely horror but here's the deal so i was not enjoying the book that much like i liked the spider chapters because they were weird and interesting the humans were so fucking boring just it completely unlike we were like i can't believe i prefer the spiders but at, at the end of the book, the humans and spiders are going to come into conflict. Like, the humans want to live on a planet, and the spiders are like, it's our planet. Fuck off. And, um... And so the spiders and the humans start fighting, and the spiders are winning. Uh, like, killing all these humans, and they're like, man, I don't know how to feel, because I don't care about these humans, but I also don't want to see the entire human species wiped out. And I was having such a miserable time with it, that I just put the book down. I didn't even realize I had 15 minutes left in the audiobook, and I just couldn't bring myself to listen to it. I was just like, I'm not, I don't, I don't care what happens. But then, I was in the bookshop, I was in Waterstones, and I was thumbing through the sci-fi section, and I picked up a book, and I started to read the blurb, and I started to read it through, and I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. And when I got to this one line, it says, human beings and their new intelligent spider allies... And I went, huh? Turns out I'd accidentally picked up the sequel. And then I was like, wait, how are they going to become friends in the last 15 minutes of this book? What does that even mean? 
So I f- have to finally listen to the end of a book. I have to finally finish it because I have to find out why. And it was got even worse. It got even worse. It turns out the big happy ending to the book, the thing that we're supposed to walk away from, and the author very clearly wants us to be like, oh, good, it all worked out in the end, is the spiders came up with a drug which mind controls the humans and makes them like spiders. Wow. And so the next book is about the descendants of these brainwashed humans. They're our main characters now. I, I'm happy for you. No, I'm happy for me. Because now there's no chance of me reading this book. Yeah, yeah. You That's the, the benefit that. of his book club. I can spare people, even if it's a sci-fi book we're not supposed to talk about. No, that's okay. Oh, wow. I think there, there's an interesting story to be told there, Geordie. And I, I don't think that's a bad concept. You're not, and you're completely right. Because the way you're talking about it doesn't sound like it grabbed you or engaged you no. in the right in the way the author probably intended. And the reason why it didn't engage me had nothing to do with the ideas. The ideas are all amazing. They're all great. You know, it's about, like traveling between stars and how it takes centuries so you have to go into hypersleep but if you have to be woken up for some reason like to repair the ship like one character is starts the book young and ends it as like an 80 year old and the main character stays the same age um and then so you're like oh wow what would that be like to have someone you care about suddenly age like 40 years in front of you um but it doesn't work because the characters are all terribly written is that kind of oh Oh, oh, tie-in. It's the Achilles heel to the novel. Bad characterization can't make up for anything. It's true, it's true. That's the fun, that's the most important thing you can write, is that you have to care about the characters. And, they, and the author, I think they dropped the ball in that regard. But have you been doing any reading, Dunk? Not so much. This took me a lot longer to get through a song of Achilles um, than it clearly did for you. Mm. Not so much that I um, was taking it slow. I just don't think I had as much reading time. In fact, quite interestingly, I spent probably about half my time, um, sorry, over half my time, getting to the halfway point. Mm. And then as soon as we got there, as soon as we got to the part in this book where they're like, and we set sail for Troy, mm-hmm. I read the rest of the novel in about two sittings. I think it would I like, make a certain amount of sense. Like, um, even though you're right, it is sort of a halfway point, and it isn't a great deal of change in tone between the two. There's definitely a lot more stuff happening in the latter half of the book. There is. Um, oh, do you know what? And let's dive into that. Mm. So, Achilles, when I picked it last for our next book, I did a little tie-in. I said, oh, in The Demon and Silver, there's a siege. What's the most famous siege <laughs> of all time? Troy, Troy, let's do Song of Achilles. Mm-hmm. I thought that would be a more important part of the story. But... And, but it's not. Mm-hmm. This isn't the story of the trojan war nope. this is it sounds obvious now that i'm verbalizing it mm-hmm. this is the story of achilles yes this is the personal characterization of achilles and q mispronunciation patrolus i can't i genuinely can't believe how badly you pronounced it and oh there's, God, t- there's, two, well. there's actually two ways to pronounce it and you did neither of them there's a k sound in there duncan pack patrolus what? Patrolicus. That's what I said, Patrolicus. Yeah, or Patrolicus. You can pick either one. I've always said Patrolicus. My audiobook narrator said Patrolicus. Yeah, Patro, Father, 
and then Locus, I guess, whatever that means. Patrolocus. Patrolocus. Yeah, you got it. Buddy. Great. This is a story of Achilles and Patrolocus, first and foremost, and in many respects only. And mm-hmm. it's the story of how they fall in love. Yeah. And the story of how war, in some respects, changes them, and how, in some respects, it doesn't change them. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, it's about Patrolicus trying to reframe the story of Achilles. The whole point is that when people look back, he wonders how they'll see his lover. Whether they'll see that he was a kind person. Whether that he was, that he played the lie beautifully. Or will they just see him as a murderer? Whether they just see him for, for his, for his, for his hubris? One fun approach for Madame Miller to take, um, not being that well versed in obviously the many interpretations over the years, I feel like this is fairly novel. I've never known of anyone else to latch onto who I presume to be a, somewhat of a side character um, in the original Iliad. Uh, he's absolutely he is a side character. There's no question of that. I would say that I would imagine this probably takes a lot of inspiration from the from the Penelope ad. Well, I don't know what that is, but... Penelope had... Well, obviously you know who Penelope is, Duncan. I, I am well book. aware. The wife of uh, Odysseus. There you go. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a book by Margaret Atwood. Points. It's about what Penelope was up to when the Odyssey's happening, when um when Odysseus is on his way home. How does she put up with all the the suitors who are um who are hounding her to try and get Odysseus's kingdom? So we explore the character there, but am I right in saying that sort of this precise framing, this sort of we're going to go down and set this story from Patroclus' youth, mm-hmm. the sort of events, the sort of pre-war events. Mm-hmm. This is uh, sort of an original fleshing out. I suppose what I'm trying to ask of you, Jordi, and I'm not sure if you, know, you actually have, you know, if you do know the answer, mm-hmm. is where the line between the classic work or the mm-hmm. classic framework and stands and where Madeline Miller came in and added the the flesh to you know, the story it's actually crazy how authentic to the mythos this is like it's really hard to believe and it's so obvious that miller knows her stuff i i can't remember her exact qualifications but i think she has a phd in classics and um it comes across incredibly well and and it's not even like in a way in which a lot of fantasy tries to be historically accurate this is probably the most historically accurate book will ever read in this podcast it is so set in its time and place and so many of the events of this story are merely extrapolations of stuff we know to be true achilles disguising himself as a girl to avoid the trojan war that's from the mythos um i think the only parts of this book which i'm like this is almost completely an invention is the opening and the very end like the idea of Patrolicus as a narrator is obviously enhancing Patrolicus's role. I've never heard of Patrolicus's Patrolicus having any kind of origin story. Like I'm my understanding of it is that he is introduced to die. Like he he's he's brought in like the character in a in a World War II movie who's showing pictures people with pictures of his girlfriend. That's his role in the Iliad. <laughs> and obviously this is a great enhancement of that. Their childhood together. Achilles is changed. Uh, is is trained by Chiron, 
but that's never obviously seen in a mythos, it's just something that we know to be true about him. His mother, she's from the mythos, and um, accepting the, um, the idea of Achilles being dipped into the river Styx to give him um, immortality or indestructibility, that's not from the mythos, and so it's excluded. That's something that was invented later down the line. Oh, I love that moment. So I know we're getting to like immediately jumping on spoilers. Can mm-hmm. we? Can you spoil like mythology? You sure cannot. Uh, this book tells you what it's about right from the beginning. Much like Hades Town, um, it says like this is a tragedy. You already know how it ends, but we're gonna revisit it anyway. Or more appropriately, Hamilton. This book has a lot in common with Hamilton. Ah, uh, see, so I was gonna throw a Romeo and Juliet reference. Uh, but yes, that's that one too. Same principle. So, I was really surprised. Like I said my opening gambit with this was like the Achilles Hill, and I actually didn't know like that that wasn't going to be a thing. And I love the little nod right near the end of this bit when uh, Paris is there with his bow, and he's like to Apollo, he's like, "Is there anywhere special I need to aim?" And, and Apollo's just like, "No, just a man, shoot him." Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Ah. Oh. <sighs> So let's roll back to the start of this then. So very loyal to the mythos, mm-hmm. but with sort of a, a new character's perspective and then a new approach to the characterization. Would you That's say right. that best sum, sums this up? Absolutely. It's it's about it's a it's a character focused and um, reimagining of the Iliad. Perfect. We did so, it. So ten out of ten. <laughs> we we, we cracked the, the code. It's just so fucking good. It's and we got to really talk about the strength of this book. Um, the characters are uh, is a huge high point. You know, there's so much to the characters, particularly of Patroclus and Achilles, but also of some of the side characters, uh, especially, oh God, you know, I actually said her name right when we started recording and I've already got it. Brycea? Brycea. Especially Brycea, like a character who um uh, has one line of dialogue in the Iliad, which is... And and it really exemplifies this Miller's approach to this book, that she has taken that one line and said, I now I need to discover everything that lies behind that line because Brycea is um is a slave. She's captured from Troy and she's she's taken in and we we should be understood in the original Iliad that she would therefore likely be abused in the way that all slaves were. That's not the case in this book. This is a very uh, kind reimagining of um, the Iliad, especially makes sense it's from Patroclus's perspective. But Brycea, when Patroclus dies, she weeps for him, and she says that he was like the best of men. Um, and so, by extrapolating backwards from that, Miller develops this nuanced, deep character whom we love to who we love to see and who we who we actually feel anxiety for when she's threatened by Agamemnon. So I feel like the best approach for breaking down Song of Achilles is not through events. No. But it's character by character. And I almost feel like mm-hmm. we should then in that sense save Achilles and Patroclus like to the end and just go down through how each other character is presented as interpretation. I say, mm. see she came so much more um, development than Fanny was in the original text. I loved her character because I like the fact that it's she, once she's taken in a slave and she's taken by Patroclus and Achilles, I think she has a very nicely paced opening up. You know, she's not instantly trusting. 
know, they have to <laughs> show that they're interested in each other, not her. And then how she kind of grows and gains confidence mm-hmm. um, in the in the um, the Greek camp. Yeah, and it and it's a um again like another a charitable reimagining of the Iliad to like humanize Achilles and Patroclus more than they might have been. And um, I feel like as much as you said, I wanted to take this uh, character by character, but I do think we need to step back and talk a little bit about the fact that this is explicitly. Um, a love story. That's the approach which um, Miller takes towards this book. It, and it, it steps back from the action and the adventure and, you know, what could be exciting about uh, the Trojan War and tries really hard to focus on the fact that this is a book about Patroclus and Achilles buying all the time they can together until destiny kills Achilles. They know he's fated to die. And everything they're trying to do is just spend more time with each other in the time Achilles has left. It's poignant. And mm-hmm. it, I think it does a good job. So Mad Men does a very good job of making you feel for Patroclus because he, in his perspective, like the lover's life is going to be taken away. And mm-hmm. everything he does is to try and kind of avoid this. And you really feel, particularly with Patroclus, is the pain he sort of goes through when mm-hmm. Achilles is kind of given this choice of you can go and kind of live happily in obscurity mm-hmm. or you can live this shorter life, but you'll go down as a, you know, a hero in legends. Mm-hmm. And I love how it's, by favorite with Patroclus, it's how he, I want to say he comes across as feeling particularly betrayed because mm-hmm. once Achilles makes that decision, he's there to like support him. Yeah. And I like that. I like the fact that he's like, I respect you. I know this is your decision. And I'm going to try and help you see it through. Yeah, there's something really interesting about this book is that, you know, Patroclus and Achilles get together really early in the book. You know, from from one of the 16th birthdays, they get together, they are in love. And then that almost doesn't change. Like obstacles come up, stuff gets in their way. But that bedrock between them it's never broken. They're always together. They're always in love. And even though it gets really complicated, um, that can't change. It's a really big change from almost every, you know, romance that you tend to read. And even when Patroclus is getting, like, very uh, irate and annoyed with Achilles for his yeah. decisions relating to the war, I really mm-hmm. like it, how it, the balance between I am annoyed with you or I am angry with you. But that doesn't change the fact that I still love you and still want what's mm-hmm. best with you, even though in this moment you are driving me mad and I think you're making a terrible, terrible decision. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not something you tend to see. It's it's just it's, it's lovely. It it really is, and I think I you know I give that example of oh I don't agree with your decision. That's relating mm-hmm. to um, Achilles' decision to kind of step back from the fighting. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are other moments that also frame it nicely. I like the fact that he has a moment when Achilles kind of like first comes back from war and he's covered in blood and Mm. it's weighing out like the, he's trying to make amends between the image he has of Achilles, which is the delicate Mm. lover, the man who plays the lyre so beautifully and this man who's gone out and butchered people Mm -hmm. and trying to frame both ideas in his head with what does he want and trying, you know, and he, I love the fact that Shokos falls on those kind of tropes of, well, he's a soldier, you know, they were soldiers you know, that was war. 
mm-hmm. versus him also having been there. Like, yeah, but most of them are probably just farmers with a weapon in their hand. Like, mm-hmm. these aren't the people who asked for this fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great way to explore both the killer's character and the themes of war and the glories behind it, which yeah. are very central to the and, whole text. And one theme which I feel like is the underlying core, which lies behind everything in this book, which is all just a metaphor for... I think this this book, more than it's about war, more than it's about love, more than it's about Achilles, it's a book about masculinity. I'm thinking that over, and I'm coming to agree. It wasn't something that was active in my mind, but you're right. It's a story about analysing what makes someone masculine, what the, what what's praised and what's prized exactly. among the men. And it's mm-hmm. certainly saying that, you know, obviously it's a classic story of hubris, Mm-hmm. Um, but so many of the problems here is because of sort of a mas- uh, false place masculine pride. Exactly, yeah. And like Agamemnon is the classic example of this. Like, there's a reason why everyone fucking hates Agamemnon. Everyone. Like, even Agamemnon's like solo story after the Trojan War sees his daughters murder him because everyone hates him. Do they? And the thing which makes him so dislikable is the fact that he's a bully. So I'm and just he... really happy that his daughters murder him. <laughs> That's actually he was such a wonderfully unlikable character. You're like he is a Billy, and he's so. Um... I think what really makes his characterization is the fact that you can tell his ego is so fragile. He's so mm-hmm. worried that people won't see him as the powerful leader, the general. Yeah. That he ends up, you know, bullying people. But the more he does that, the more it just reveals him to be petty. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, like the, he's he's like, like he is the epitome of like toxic masculinity. He he has to put other people down to make himself feel big. And, like I said, and I really. love that though, it has this nice like cycle to it because every time he kind of does that, it's almost like he can tell it's making him look more petty, which in turn makes him more angry. Which in turn means he does it more, trying to put other people down, which in turn makes him look more petty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it even goes to the other characters we meet, like. The other heroes of Greece, who Duncan will now list. Of course, the heroes of Greece. After Achilles, there is Ajax. Very good, yep. Smaller Ajax. Yes, is he even mentioned in this book? Uh, I'm not actually sure, but I, I know there yeah. are two. There uh, is Ajax the Greater and Ajax the Lesser. There is a um, Ajax obviously... the Lesser, just that's real sad. There's obviously um, Odysseus. Um, yep. He has a really good role. There's... Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Diomedes? Diomedes? You're really close. It's Diomedes. Diomedes. Yeah. Underrepresented hero in the Greek canon. Um, Doesn't happen in this book. And in fact, he doesn't come across well in this book. Madeline was like... Why do I always talk to authors about their their first name? Miller. Miller uh, decided that he was basically going to be a psycho. Like, he fucking loved being at war. Which works for the story, but I'm like, don't, don't do my man dirty like that. Diomedes in the Iliad is, like, 100% pure badass. He literally beats Ares. Like, in a, in a straight-up one-to-one fight. He beats Ares and wins. See, why is, why is Achilles the main character? <laughs> See, that's good. That gives a bit more context uh, to this character. Because I was originally going to say... Well, originally, guys, I'm going to say it. Uh, he's really underdeveloped in this story. I actually I at points, I actually kind of, in my notes, was just like, there's a council, and you've like, yeah, Agamemnon, bad guy, Odysseus, cool guy, always got something to say. And you go mm-hmm. to Diomedes, Diomedes, and it's just like, 
and he was there. And you know, he... and you know, it's kind of fair enough, but it's also a bit true for the Iliad. Like, um, he's not given his due, and he just said he beat Ares. Yeah, but that's kind of a minor thing, all in all, because they keep talking about how important it is that Achilles needs to be there, and even Agamemnon has like his day where he kicks butt. That's nice. I like that framing. I do think for this story, you're right though. It works that he's reframed as the the epiphany of just like I want to go out and fight. Yeah, because he got to do something with him, and it might, it might as well be the guy who beat the shit out of Ares. Not mentioned in this text though. Not mentioned in this text. The gods are a bit more subtle. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll have to move on. Um, apart from Apollo, he's the only god that's just like, come on, mate. This this isn't fair. Yeah, and Apollo's the guy who was too tough for for Diomedes. So you know, clearly he's um. Wait, yeah, does that mean that he's, uh, by official Apollo? So Apollo outranks Ares when it comes Apparently. to fighting. Yeah, I mean he won the Trojan War. Well, no, he didn't. He actually lost, but he killed Achilles, and that's pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> enough. Uh, Toxic masculinity. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Yes. Uh, so when it comes to those other characters, I think it's nice because you get a nice variance. I wouldn't say anyone's a a carbon copy of anyone else, mm-hmm. but they each explore their own sort of negative elements. Even Odysseus, who I think comes off relatively well. Yeah. He's almost... I think he always plays it a bit too too cool for school. He tries <laughs> to be a bit aloof in this and always yeah. to be the one with the, kind of the smart quip. But I think it also then just reveals the fact that like he's not prepared to really engage with some of the darker things that are happening. Mm-hmm. No, Odysseus does, like, he straight up says, like, you know, we should do this bad thing. It's his idea to conduct the initial raids, um, which Patrolicus talks about how bad they are. Like, uh, wasn't the whole violence. thing his idea? Like, yeah, it's his idea. He's the idea guy. And um, No, no, no. The whole war is because he had the great idea of that's, everyone swearing. That's, that's true. That's true. And Odysseus, he is, like, supposed to be the smartest of all Greek heroes. And he is. It's not hard, but um, he still makes a lot of a lot of really ego-based errors. Um, you should really read the Odyssey, man. It's just so it's it's a really exciting story. But is it is it easily readable? Yes. Like obviously there are translations, but and you can find translations say, which like Greek. yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know there are different editions, and different editions can be um more or less exciting if 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 you've never read the odyssey then i'd recommend just reading like an abridged version like one that tells the story very directly the original story is like it starts not with odysseus it starts with his son telemachus and telemachus at the age of like 17 says like i'm gonna try and find out what happened to my dad who i haven't met since i was two years old because he went off to war and he goes off he tried he finds some of the of odysseus's old friends and says what happened to my dad? And they tell him the first part of a story, and then eventually, and Athena tells him a little bit more of the story, and then we get to see Odysseus like on his adventures. And that's not an interesting way to tell the story. It's weird and it's slow. When you really just just want to be out on the adventure with Odysseus, jumping between islands, bam, 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 adventure into adventure into adventure. The Odyssey is like the closest you can come to reading The Hobbit. Like that is really the sort of story you go on. I think you've just about sold it to me. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> but, but, focusing on the Song of Achilles. Focusing on um, the Song of Achilles, you spoke about the Greek heroes. Do you want to have a quick pop over the, the battlefield and talk 
about the Trojans? Nope. Okay. There's nothing okay. to them. Like, I mean, that's one thing you can say about his book, which is true to the Iliad. Um, they didn't get any development, um, and that's fine. Like, it's not a it's not a complaint I have, but like Hector isn't a character. Um, everything we know about Paris is just speculation by Patroclus about what he's like. The one exception is Priam, who I was really surprised to actually meet in the story. The king of Troy, after losing his like fifty sons, comes to visit Achilles, and they have a very surprising heart to heart about losing their loved ones. It, I enjoyed that scene. I enjoyed mm. the idea. That scene, I, I did take two little issues. One was the whole, wait, you, you just snuck into camp. You you could just do that. Why haven't you assassinated Agamemnon? Um, I mean, to be fair, the, the, they, built a, they built a wall, like a palakine, and then they filled it with holes the previous day. So this actually probably was his first chance. Okay, but also, didn't they build that wall about four years in? Yeah, but that's because Troy was hiding behind their walls. Ah, that makes sense. Um, and the other thing is, I did feel that this moment, it was the only time where I felt like things were being spelled out a little bit too much. Like, mm. I felt this scene had a message, and and this is only in comparison to the rest of the book, mm-hmm. but I felt like this heart-to-heart of... You know, at the end of the day, it's not the war, but it's the loved ones that count. <laughs> I, I guess like, you're right about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was getting that message. You, you didn't need a character to actually say those words. Maybe it was the friends we made along the way that was the real treasure of Troy. You know what wasn't the treasure of Troy? Helen? She's not mentioned. I mean, in that conversation? No, I mean in the end of this book. I actually had to reread it before we started recording. But there's a summary, about a two-page summary at the end of this book about what happens when they finally take Troy. Do you know yeah. who's not mentioned in that summary? You know what? I just realised I don't know what happens to Helen. No! How is this I, not I mentioned? I don't know. Like, period. I don't know what happens to Helen. Do, do they just miss out? Is it like a, a plot thread? They're like, okay, we need Helen to start the war. I mean, it's really, to be fair, it's actually, like, really unimportant. And it kind of almost could be the point that, like, it doesn't matter what happens to Helen, whether she goes back with... Um, go on, go on, say his name, say his name. Starts with an M. Menenius? Menenius? Melanius? Dad! Menenius. What's Helen of Troy's husband called? He won't answer. Menenius. He's also a very absent character. I think that's... I want to say that there's a, a message being delivered there. Though. He doesn't come up in the Iliad that much. Why? Like, surely these this should be a bit of the focus. Well, he's not the focus. Like, I mean, the Iliad, he's, he's just a, like, even though he is Helen Troy's husband, Agamemnon is in charge. Like, that is how the story goes. Agamemnon's his brother? Hmm? Is Agamemnon his brother? Or... Oh, maybe, I think so. But, yeah, I thought, you know, having, not wrapping up Helen... I think it was good. I can, and I think there's clearly. I, I can't speak for the original Iliad, but sort of in the song of Achilles. Oh, that's right. His name's Menelaus, and he is the brother of Agamemnon. Fantastic. In the song of Achilles, it delivers sort of that message of these men aren't going to war really about no. Helen. Helen's the excuse. You always get the sense that these people are like looking yeah, for like war, war one. waiting to have their moment of glory, mm-hmm. and it's like brilliant. That's it, guys. We've got a reason. Justification's done. The gods can't complain, mm-hmm. although they do complain. We're off to kill the Trojans. 
Yeah, if you could even argue, like from a from a cool a reading of this book, could be that Achilles, sorry, that this was Odysseus's plan the whole time, that he could unite Greece and then eventually get to go to war with Troy if he was really really insightful and knew a lot about Paris. But yeah, to explore the themes of the book a little bit more, you're taught you're right to point out that like war is the point. It's not about Helen. It's not even really about truces. It's about the glory and the gold. And to go back to my point, it's about proving how much of a man you are. You know, the reason why Achilles is so celebrated is that he's this great warrior. Um, and everyone else is trying to, 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 to prove themselves as well, to show how, how cool they are, how much of a badass they are. And they do this not just by winning fights and being in the front of the line when the charge comes, it's also about the way they interact with women. All right. Yep. Because women in this book exist to be possessed. This is a very, very deliberate choice on Miller's It's a part. theme that's established, firstly, at the very opening with the character of Helen. People are going there to possess her, to, mm -hmm. you know, to basically buy her off her father. Yeah, to tr they, they are offering up gifts to trade for her. Um, and it's seen as this great kind of clever idea from Odysseus of why don't we just let Helen choose come on guys what, what would that be like yeah that is the first point in Odysseus is awesome count I have very few notes for this book but that is one of them is that Odysseus is great he, he has some negatives too but that is that is a good thing he, he did. does he does but I'm happy to talk about that um and then you also f bring this up again with uh Achilles mother which is Mm -hmm. I don't think even quite enough uh, attention um, is the fact that... I think that's somewhat the point. Exactly. So to explain kind of the plot here, uh, Achilles' mother and father. Uh, Achilles' father is a mortal man who pleases the gods through mm -hmm. his being just a good king, almost, actually. They kind of, kind of make it clear that he wasn't particularly a great warrior, but he was humble mm -hmm. and wise and sort of caring of his kingdom. Yep. Humility is very important. So the gods say, right, as a as a reward, you can take a um, I'm going to say a sea nymph. I'm going to refer to her, mm -hmm. uh, one of the lesser, slightly lesser gods, for a great beauty in her own right, to um, be the mother of your child. The only thing is, the Jesus. gods don't get her say on the matter. Nope. Nope. And uh, that's sort of a really important part of this book, which is that um, is sexual violence towards women. Like, it's laid out pretty plainly. Patroclus doesn't wince when he describes it. And I feel like that's something that's really, uh, which is done so well in this book, is that even though Patroclus feels like an outsider, he doesn't feel like he fits into conventional forms of masculinity, and he can't step up and perform masculinity in the same way that the other Greek heroes can. He's still a part of ancient Greek culture. And ancient Greek culture is probably the most misogynistic culture to have ever existed, Duncan, if you don't know a lot about history. Right, I'm not going to confirm or deny that statement. I'll let you just take the brunt for that. But go on. Yeah, I mean, I can't think, I can't think of one in, all, in any reading history. Like, women didn't have rights. They were basically the possession of their husbands. Uh, in Athens, at a certain point in history, they weren't allowed to go outside um pretty yeah 
it, it sucks to be a woman I think in Greece. This, it really shows when these are their... The word for, like, getting betrothed and kidnapping your bride were basically the same thing. Okay. Wow. Um, I was just going to make a point where I think it really speaks to the fact that in the in the very gods, the myth of their gods, that this has come normalised. And I almost think it's not recognised how almost dark this is, that you've got, uh, with Achilles' father, uh, Pe- mm-hmm. Peleus, Peleus? Yep, Peleus. Yes. Um, it's like his gift for being a humble, so far completely good person mm-hmm. is, oh, well done for being so nice. Here, you may now do an unspeakably evil act. Yep, and they it's don't like, see it as evil. Like, the, the society doesn't see it as bad. Even Patrolicus, who's a good guy, he barely sees it as bad. Like, he, he doesn't show any sympathy for Thetis throughout the rest of the book. He despises her. He doesn't... He's in. It's only at the very end that he can even empathize with her in the slightest. And that is a really smart choice. Because even though we like Patrolicus, he still sees things the way the other characters do. It's stepping way outside of a line and doing something extraordinary when he tells Achilles to uh, to possess Briseis. I found out there was an S at the end. Um, to in order to to protect her, to say don't let anyone else do anything bad to her. We're gonna save her by by taking her. Um, that's this this huge act of, of defiance of conventional masculinity in this book. And one which they have to hide from people. Because if people found out that they weren't abusing their slaves, they'd be like, what's wrong with you guys? Oh, God. It it kind of... It does fuel an uncomfortable sensation. Obviously. And I, hope I it does think it's actually one. really well handled, though. Like, really well. I think what it is, is, for me at least, it shines a spotlight onto the Greek myths. Mm-hmm. By not jumping up and down and sort of condemning these elements, but by showing how within the context it was almost normalised, mm-hmm. it then allows you to look at it from a modern perspective and go, oh, this was always there. Yeah. Like, this has always been there in the Iliad. It really goes it goes out, it really shows how well this book handles the topic of sexual violence. And I think it's probably the best examination we've had of it since reading Strange of a Dreamer. Um, is that whilst the peril of it exists all the time, like all the basically all the female characters in this book are aware that that's something they are in danger of almost constantly. Um, it doesn't feel exploitative. It doesn't feel like. Uh, what's the word, like, um, gratuitous in any way. It feels sensitively handled, in my opinion. It's, I think it's driven by the sense, um, as I mentioned, like, the Adad, it's not, it's not driven by, like, an individual scene. It's not like this harsh punch. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to sound a bit weird. There's a bit of a weird metaphor. <laughs> but on the the painted canvas that is this book, it's not this grand, you know, dash splodge of like red and dark color mm-hmm. it's just simply this sort of gray wash put over everything mm-hmm. and because you can see it like that and notice it's there on this book i think it really helped me then turn to the to the greek mythos in general 
and go, oh, that haze has been there. I might not have noticed it consciously mm-hmm. when I was looking at the the Greek myths in sort of, from sort of a cultural perspectives. Mm-hmm. But now I can. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I'm, gl- I'm glad that art metaphor worked because I, I it really lost faith in it at one point. Was, I was like, was what am well I saying? Now, what's next on my list? I'm going to look at my notes. So I've discovered something, which is, um, well, I when I enjoy a book, I don't seem to write notes about them because I get carried away and I focus on the story. And um, I actually listened to, I was listening to this book, an audiobook as usual, and I listened to a good portion of it um, on my way to Pluto. We have this thing set up in Cambridge right now where um, we have the planets set. Um, what's the right word? Obviously not. To scale, thank you, Duncan. Yeah, but with the planets set apart as like these archways set to scale. It's like 80 meters from the sun to Mercury and then like another 100 meters to, to Venus. And then, and if you want to go all the way to Pluto, it's eight and a half kilometers. So on, on that 17 kilometer walk, there and back, I was listening to this book. I just and, love the idea that you, you get all the way up there and instead of it being a thing with... Pluto, it's just a little sign being like, Pluto isn't a real planet, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, I told everyone in a group chat, I made sure that my stance on Pluto is very clear, which is that it's not a planet, I don't respect it, and anyone who comes to me saying that Pluto is a planet, I swear to God, you are nothing to me. You're... Anyway, I, I made sure that when I went there, I went up to Pluto, I took a photo of me giving it the finger, and that was it. I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. I hope we're on the same page in regards to Pluto. I hope everyone is. It's it's a very important matter that we understand. Yeah. That you know, it's a slippery soap. As soon as you accept Pluto, mate, there's so many other small bodies like that. Mm-hmm. We could we could have who's we could end next? up with like forty Series? planets. Don't don't do not joke about such things. It barely barely even bears mentioning. Uh, Duncan, you of course know. Uh, that Pluto is the all the planets have Roman names, yes, and that they are um they're of Greek gods that have been translated into into Latin. I do indeed, but other than Mars, I actually don't know which gods they align to. Interesting. So you don't know who Mercury is? No. Do you want to guess? Mercury. So it's very small, and it goes around the sun very quickly, right? Like Hermes. Like Hermes. Yes. I bet you know who Venus is. Venus, Venus, Venus. Oh, it's going to be one that... What do, what do you associate with Venus, the, the word Venus? Oh, the, the Venus de... Venus de Milo. Yeah, okay, sure. But that is... Yeah, sure. What is And what does that statue represent? No idea. It's a, it's a female gendered yeah. god. Yeah, yeah, that's Either good. Aphrodite or Hera. One of those is correct. Aphrodite. You got it! Well done, dude. I know. See? Makes sense when you think about it. Is, uh, which, one's, right. which one's Poseidon out of interest? Uh, Neptune. Neptune. That one That one would be hard. I've, I reckon after Jupiter, that, after that it's like, who fucking knows? That That's hard. That's difficult. But you probably know who Jupiter is. Oh, come on. Let's not keep playing this game. Uh, Jupiter is... <laughs> oh, I'm going to give that to Hades. No, Jupiter is um, it's the biggest planet. It's the most important. Oh, so obviously it's Zeus. Zeus. 
Yeah, Pluto, as you'd expect, is Hades, because he's the furthest away and the coldest. Okay. I love Greek mythology. I love it so much. I can much. tell you really love it. But let's focus I, um... on okay. on this book. And I think now the real aspect of this book, which sets it apart from Greek, why you would want to read Song of Achilles and not the Iliad. Probably many reasons. But the main reason I would say read this yeah. because even if you're not interested in Greek mythology, mm-hmm. even if that's not a thing for you, if that's just nothing for you, this is an excellent example of a love story between uh, two men mm-hmm. in a very toxic masculinity-driven society. Mm-hmm. What it doesn't do, I, okay. from my perspective, is clearly demonstrate what society's outlook on their relationship kind of is. I agree. This is weird. This is a really weird choice. Go, but I want you to handle this one, Duncan. Okay. Well, as someone on who's me. not as familiar with ancient Greece, what is your reading of this? So my reading of this is that it's not, uh, it's not outlawed. It's not illegal. Mm-hmm. It seems to just be more of a social faux pas from mm-hmm. a from a kind of like oh that's a bit embarrassing. Yeah. That that seems to be it. It's kind of like it would be something you you might take a joke out of someone for, but mm-hmm. no blood is ever going to be spilt. Yeah, and and his and it's very and in that way, Miller is very much comparing um, gay men in ancient Greece to gay men in modern day, where for the most part, at least in countries that I live in, and at least for now, as of the fourteenth of August, twenty twenty two. We'll see how that changes in the next year or so. Not illegal. Um, sorry, I got heated and I forgot what I was talking about. Um, but that's not... And obviously Miller is the, has the PhD in classics. I think she knows a little bit more than I do. But like, it's not taboo to be gay in ancient Greece. It's actually expected. Like, if you and I were hanging out... And um, I and I was going to poke fun at you, Duncan. I'd be like, well, look at this guy. He, he only likes women. That's pretty fucking lame, bro. And you'd be like, eh, uh, not, not true. I totally hook up with guys, like, all the time. They just live in Canada. <laughs> because that would be like, you would, because that wouldn't, you wouldn't be enough of a man. You know, like, oh, you only like to hang out with women? Pretty gay, bro. It's that sort of thing. Right, excellent. I'm glad you've clarified that because that is how I thought, mm-hmm. or at least how the Greeks have been represented in the culture that I, the media that I've consumed thus far in my yeah. life. The impression but I a, got. A true man in ancient Greece, because obviously ancient Greece wasn't like everyone has to be gay. Like, that's not how society functions. But. And a can man I just was dive in and say that be... when you say ancient Greece, you know, you're talking about. Many sort of individual kingdoms over a period of several hundred years. You know, there might be yeah, a level that's of diversity. That's true. That's very true. To the statement. That's true. That's true. There's, there's a ton of different kingdoms, and um, each of them had, you know, their own cultures and their own rules. But they're all pretty gay. And um, the thing is, is that um, the the ideal man. And we've talked so much about toxic masculinity in the context of ancient Greece, but we're talking about, you know, how a man was expected to behave. Uh, the optimum man was bisexual. You know, he had he had male lovers and he had a wife. And a wife's purpose was for making babies. And that that's that's her function. 
but he can actually connect with and have an emotional relationship with and have a fun sexual relationship with his bros, you know? As in, uh, I understand what you're saying, yes. Yeah, and here's the thing, like, to give a great example, in Sparta, after a man got married to his to his wife, there was a sort of taboo around the idea of him going and sleeping with her. Like, that was kind of seen as less masculine. So, the women of Sparta would cut their hair, disguise themselves as boys, and sneak into the Spartan camp to sleep with their new husbands. Because it sort of, you know, and obviously this is sort of like a cultural joke. Like, this is a tradition, much more than it is a practical, like, sneaking method. But it goes to show that the value which the Spartans had was, to make this acceptable, women had to adopt the role of men, specifically younger gay men, to, um, to have an appropriate relationship. But that's not what happens in this book. No. Okay, and I think that's the key thing to kind of draw on. That's not what's in this book. Now, I think then it's safe to assume that Miller is, mm-hmm. would be aware of those impressions. Absolutely. And unless she's sitting on a secret bit of research mm-hmm. um, that we don't know about, she's intentionally decided to represent the uh, homosexual relationship in this story to reflect the kind of ideals of present day more so than they were at the ancient time. I think that's exactly right. I think she's very much made a deliberate choice to say, in order to make the story I want to make and make it about the performance of being a man, um, I need to con- carry on the bigotry of modern day. I have to put that into my story. I am happy she did this. Okay. Because... I, you know what? I wouldn't say I'm happy or unhappy, but I am for it as a choice. I feel like it is a choice that is appropriate for her to make. I think there's only one real drawback and from that okay. choice, and that is I wouldn't want someone to then misunderstand and take this as their only source. That's that true. this were the ideals at the time. But I do Shouldn't like do it because anyway. I think it then helps. This whole story is about reframing the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense for a modern, I'm doing the air quotes, uh, perspective. What we mm-hmm. value versus what was valued back then. Mm-hmm. In terms of what makes someone a good person or a strong man. And yeah, like that. the treatment of Briseis is not accurate to the Iliad. Exactly. But... By kind of reframing this relationship in one day, I think it just opens up to a little bit more um, engagement and, for lack of a better word, sort of empathy mm-hmm. for uh, Petrolius, Petrolicus, Petrolicus, for his perspective, Pat. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't disrespect him like that. Petrolicus. 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 Yeah, Petrolicus's perspective, and I don't know if this is kind of right or wrong of me. But it One meant day that... we're going to read a Welsh story, Duncan, and your head's going to melt. Because I felt I could engage. I could then see, okay, these are his insecurities, these are the issues he faces, and I... This sounds even worse, but this is probably... I'm saying something bad about society in this. It may... If they... I feel like if Miller had represented the, the cultural attitudes towards homosexual relationships at the time in this text, uh-huh. it may have, in a sense, been quite alien... And being something that I would have gone, okay, this is very, very different. I would have enjoyed it. But by making it a little bit more relatable, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, it meant that I could... 
I could feel what he was going through mm-hmm. a bit more, and by making it that bit more relatable to sort of uh, modern day ideals, I'm not gonna lie, it, it, it gave you greater empathy. It was more it, accessible to you. Yeah, it's more accessible, and it also it did get great empathy. I've gone, oh, it's a bit taboo. He's feeling a bit of shame. Yeah, and it also creates it drama to him. You mentioned Romeo and Juliet before, and that's because there's an element of forbidden romance, the idea that they're not supposed to be together. Um, Thetis, um, Achilles' mother, despises Patroclus. She wants him to die um, so she, that he can get out of the way of her son's true legacy and, and Achilles having grandchildren and having what she would view as a proper relationship. And the, re- the way that Thetis is shown to be a villain in this story, even though, from our modern perspective, she should be a sympathetic character, because it's viewed through the eyes of Patroclus, who is the object of her enmity, she's turned into this, you know, this inhuman monster, this scary figure. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, there's two answers. One, I do like how the focus is still put on his mortality, mm-hmm. but I feel like the way Minas written this, it sort of blurred that line. Like, in context, she's a bigger towards him because he's a mortal. That's, like, sort of the more textual reason. But it's framed subtly enough in places that you can read this easily as because he's a man. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, co- it's about coding. You know, like, a parent disapproving of your relationship with another man. It's, it mean, it's coded as being... Yeah, she she's she's a homophobe. Even though it's you know in the text of a book, it's for other reasons. Anyone who you know does a a smidge of squinting at it sees it for what it's really sort of representative of. But I also really enjoyed the idea of, and I probably rated this more than I should have. Uh, Patroclus basically then dehumanizing Thetis as just this antagonistic individual. Yeah. Yeah. Like and and giving no thought to her background and her life and seeing her as I know she's a god but as sort of her human experience mm-hmm. and the struggles that she's gone through and I I particularly kind of related the fact that you know when you first get introduced to your sort of partner's parents you have this most like you, you don't think the fact that they've had you know a fifty years worth of life and whatever mm-hmm. colourful experience they've had you just go come on why don't you like me yeah yeah absolutely it's um I I and even though like. I think this goes to show that we don't judge books by the morality of the hero. It's an absurd, reduct, re, absurdly reductive um, reading of a book uh, to, to, to use that as the metric by which we judge it. Because it goes to show that we as audience members are able to have more flexible views of the characters than perspective we are granted by the book. You and I, Duncan, can have sympathy for Thetis, whilst acknowledging that Patroclus is too limited in his perspective because he lives in this patriarchal society where he doesn't think about um, the treatment which Thetis received as especially terrible or something that would have a prolonged impact on her. We can see her as someone who's experienced abuse in the past, who is now fixated on her child and in her view protecting her child she wants achilles to be remembered forever so that he'll be immortal like her she's trying in her weird alien way to protect achilles she's trying to be in her mind a good mother 
And we can't relate to that through Patroclus's eyes, because he has a much more human perspective. That Achilles dying is Achilles dying. Now, what I really do then enjoy is how then we get given the character of Pyrrhus, uh, Achilles' son, near the very end of this book. Yeah, wow. And that was that... out of nowhere. That is like, you. I felt like I got hit on the back of the head by a 2 by 4 when Pyrrhus showed up. Okay, so for further context, uh, early on in the novel, Achilles um, has sex with... When he's trying to flee Troy, not flee Troy, when he's trying to avoid the draft, he hides out in this remote location and part of his sort of agreement to hide out there is he will marry the local king's daughter. Um, And she gets pregnant and Mm -hmm. then... Uh, Petrolophus shows up and Odysseus shows up and then he leaves for Troy and she's not really mentioned again um, mm-hmm. until Pyrrhus shows up after Achilles dead and the idea with Pyrrhus is Pyrrhus is everything that Thetis thought she wanted Achilles to be he has mm-hmm. been taken, she has poured into his mind the ideas of being a warrior all the negative toxic masculinities have gone into Pyrrhus and what this means is number one Pyrrhus is an absolute ass on levels of genuine i'm gonna say clockwork orange levels of yep i do not like you um yep. honestly i had two other characters i've ever read that i almost did not like as much as this pyrus and pyrus is in so little of this book it was genuinely impressive um and that He's is alex from a clockwork orange and your joffrey no not joffrey actually uh I, I, I only just clicked in my head but actually he's a comparable character he is yeah actually no you're right so joffrey i'd accept uh probably not ramsey bolton i i have i think he's a little bit more nuanced weirdly um <laughs> and york at the very start of broken empire uh, he also gets more nuanced as the books go on uh but just from a completely unlike all little shit yeah and you've got to see it from the perspective of this little shit has just had all the worst parenting all the wrong values have just been implanted onto yeah. them by He's society. Been told, you are the super warrior. You are the inheritor of Achilles, strongest in Greece. Um, that's you. And he completely buys it. No one has ever told him he could be anything else. And he, he owns it completely. And he has all the, the most toxic masculine traits, which Achilles has rejected through his life. He's like, what if Diomedes raised Achilles? You know, what if Agamemnon got to design Achilles to be like the perfect weapon that he wanted? And what I like about this is then all those sort of aforementioned characters finally see him for the shit. Like, Thetis thinks she's finally done something to, like, save Achilles. Mm-hmm. And she has that moment of, like, oh no, I was wrong. I think that I like that about, like, the overprotective parent. Like, Thetis is understandable, she's relatable, she's gone through such trauma in her life, she just wants to protect her son. Doesn't mean she's right in what she kind of wants to do, and I think that's what sort of Pyrrhus shows. And again, with Agamemnon, there's a really good bit near the end where it describes one of the things that Pyrrhus does when they finally take Troy, which is brain a baby, head against a wall. And it, it, I love there's a little line where it's like, even Agamemnon blanched. Like, they finally got their super warrior, and they're all looking at him in horror. And then finally, the bit that really made me go, I despise this character, I despise this character, this is the absolute 
is how he then tries to go against everything that Patroclus is doing through sort of this story, destroying the memory of Achilles, trying to erase all the human aspects, all the good he did uh, by trying to have a memory just as a warrior. And it's interesting because there's uh, a line that does reflect that, talking about like shared values and social values, um, where it kind of talks about the fact that, you know, Pyrus is from his head, he's trying to make Achilles look the best he could be and bury the, the darker aspects. But then we get to stand here from that modern perspective and go, no, that's what makes Achilles a good person. I feel like I have said everything I wanted to say about the book, and I'm not surprised, but this is feeling like a shorter episode. I think it uh, does speak to the one when we both very much um, we just agree. It's like, it's really good. I like it. And actually, another thing is that not a great deal happens in the book. Like, it has this wonderfully slow, methodical pace to it. But at the end of the day, it's not about big change in status quo. Like, Demon Silver is to go there, they go there, they go there, they go there. And we didn't even cover all that. We still had to sort of mention it in, um, in brief. But there's no other perspective characters to talk about. You know, it's, um, it's just carry on. Keep it up. You know, it's all Patroclus' perspective. It is, and I think it really speaks volumes. Um, when I picked up this book, expecting uh, The Siege of Troy, and what I got was very casually thrown out, and four years later, <laughs> and a year afterwards. And yeah. just like, cool, that's, that's, this is how the war is, is happening. And yeah. It's interesting because, like I said, I was sitting on the siege of Troy, but they kind of rock up, look at the city and go, oh, well, no attacking that. We'll just yep. uh, mill about outside for a bit. Well, that's the siege, isn't it? It's like we can't fight it, so we just surround it. And um, I, I really appreciate a couple of things that whilst um, battles are far and away, like something which is not the priority behind this book, it still talks about it as a war and not just a waiting game with occasional battles which is exactly what the iliad is is um you know like it talks about how there are reinforcements from anatolia and um that the beginning of this war is about conducting these raids and destroying farmlands to starve out the city and um i appreciated that that it was like okay we are still looking at this you know as a war and we talk about it in terms about it being a war but the most important and interesting stuff are things about how they develop this little society. Um, the, the, the heroes of Greece in their separate camps and the way the, the Myrmidons change over the course of the story. It's, um, you know, it's, it's relaxing. It feels like, it feels like stepping into a, a bar whilst watching chaos take place in the distance. It's like, it's like watching a thunderstorm from inside your house. That's a really good way to say it, because especially uh, from Patroclus' perspective, who very rarely takes the field, yep. he sort of sits in the tents and chats to Phrysia uh, and the other women, and, you know, they come back and there's been some blood, but no one you really know has died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like it how it talks about this is the forming of sort of the collective Greek identity by all these men mm. from all these nations sitting there together. It becomes less about where they originally came from, more just... We are the Greeks. Yeah. Uh, doesn't play out like all of Greek history and them fighting each other is going to come after this. <laughs> but it's a nice thought, isn't it? 
it, it is the yeah. oh, the thing is I feel like I need to just back off some like negatives to, to feel balanced but you don't the... have to you don't have to be balanced man you don't have to defend all the bad books you read and you don't have to say slander about the good ones you One can thing... still say it I'm just saying you don't need to be obliged no you're right and to be fair a balanced view doesn't not this book isn't balanced this book is just overwhelmingly good <laughs> it's true yeah um, and the most biggest criticism we've already levied at it is the slightly confusing perspective on gay relationships in it. And yeah. I think we've said everything about that that we needed to say. I feel like the only other thing that this book does is it really leaves me wanting more. There's so many side characters and references to these people. Like at one point, the Amazons show up with their like half moon shields and what have you. Just like, who are these? Where do they mm-hmm. come from? And I really just makes you want to be like, can. Miller, do you mind just like I read a series? I've got great news for you. You know, I know you really like this character, Odysseus, and there's actually a spin-off written about him. Is there? Yeah, it's all about like you know you you know you want to like oh I wonder what happens to this guy next. Like obviously he's just gonna go home, and as we see in the book, not a long journey. So you know it'll probably be a little short adventure on his trip home. But, you know, you do get to spend a little bit more time with that character, you know? Right. I think we should actually talk about the uh, the next book that Miller wrote after this. So, yes. Geordie, you... This is your first Miller book? Yes. Okay. Well, you had uh, one of two. And the second book she wrote was Cersei. And Kirky. for a number of reasons, I ended up reading Cersei first. Kirky. And I'll tell you now, I think I preferred this book. Okay. But I do recommend Cersei wholeheartedly. It picks up on the, I'm going to say, side character of Cersei from the Odyssey. Um, you know all about. Know all about. Now I do. and um, But I think what that book does quite differently to this one, again, it's very characterization focused, mm-hmm. but it has a major difference, is that one is focusing on a female character. Mm-hmm. And it pitches the focus of the sort of cultural element that we're analyzing to the female experience in in greece mm-hmm. in ancient greece and that does an awful lot obviously to the narrative it also the one thing that i think it pulls back on where i preferred it in song of achilles is cersei is often a more isolated character so a lot of the side characters kind of come and go mm-hmm. and she is uh, uh one of the immortals you know she's from the gods so mm. it takes place over a much greater time span. And I think while that allows a much deeper dive into the main character, it does mean that everything else very much, like I said, all the side characters kind of come and go. And there's a lot more like touching base with lots of different Greek myths, which can be a pro or a con, depending on what you prefer. Yeah, that makes sense. But it would be a sort of longer rambling story because the story of Kirky would take place like like, from the beginning of time until the end of Greek Heroes. I'm assuming that book ends with her meeting with Odysseus, right? Uh, yeah, that is one of the final elements of that book, is mm. her tying up with Odysseus and even exploring a bit about what Odysseus does, or especially Miller's version of Odysseus is like. Once mm-hmm. he finally gets home and hangs up his hat, it actually follows him into, like, middle and old age. Mm. And That's nice. I d- well... Um. You should read it, mate. Um, <laughs> but what that book really does 
which this book also does to a lesser extent, which I really, really did like. I'm just praising another Miller book now to the extent. But what I love about it is it really made me realise with these Greek myths, because uh, one of them explores this, the Minotaur, mm-hmm. Minotaur. And it talks about how the Minotaur came into being. Um, and once you go down to a human level and you fully characterise the woman who says, make me a golden ball that I can sit inside so it can, uh, this magnificent beast can fuck me. Well, once you've fully characterised up everyone in the room, mm-hmm. that gets really disturbing. Yeah. Like, on a, such another level that I always washed over when reading about the myth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me realise, yeah, Greek myths really messed up. Yeah. Really weird sort of priorities and what their, their uh, compared from our modern perspective, their sort of cultural priorities. Oh, oh boy. Speaking of like mythology and stuff, I would, I hope we get more books like this that take place in other cultures. Like even if we, we don't do a deep dive into more ancient Greek mythology stuff. If, I mean, if Miller decides to keep, um, focusing on minor characters in the Greek canon and decides to write her next story about Hippolyta, good example, um, then power to her. But I wonder if we'll ever get some more in-depth stories about this, about other mythologies. If there'll be some deep character studies of, um, of minor characters in Norse mythology. Or even crazier stuff, like what if there are uh, stories set in, in Aztec mythology? And that that would be fun to hear Duncan try to pronounce names from Aztec mythology. I think what makes it work so well... Say Quetzalcoatlus. Quetzalcoatlus. Great, we did it. What makes, I think makes it work is the fact that it's bringing a level of characterization that allows sort of, the modern readers to fully empathise and engage with these classic characters, mm-hmm. while at the same time being so strictly loyal to the structure of the original text that you don't feel like you're reading fan fiction. You don't feel like... Uh, I love Percy Jackson, but I certainly don't feel that the Zeus in that book is the same Zeus from the Odyssey and the Iliad. I know it's meant to be thousands of years later, but that's... Like, I don't feel like I'm fully engaged. I feel like I'm, you know, this is the Diet Coke version of this character, by and large. Whereas this story fully made me feel like, no, I've experienced a bit of the Iliad. I've experienced a bit of this ancient legend, just with a modern perspective and new characterization um, injected into it. Let's move towards our conclusion. I give this book two thumbs up. A plus, very good. You should definitely read it if you like good literature, Greek mythology, romance, slow burn stories. Uh, you were looking for a, a gay romance, A plus version of that. Yep, big thumbs up for me. Uh, I would give this book top marks across the board. Um, mm. I think that if you have wanted to engage with maybe something like the Iliad or the Odyssey and it's always been a bit scary. This is a wonderful way to step into it. I think every subject matter it approaches, it is thoughtful and conscientious of. Um, And it, for me, delivered a very emotionally resonant uh, story and ending. Mm. And I absolutely loved it. 
great success. Well done, Duncan. Your 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 ability to choose a story which we both enjoyed has been redeemed. All right. Over to you, Geordie. Yep. So, um, because Duncan's going to be busy in two weeks, uh, we've decided that I'm going to pick a shorter one. I'm going to read. A, I'm going to pick a novella for us to read, so that we'll be able to um, review it um, uh, next week. So, for that reason, I'm picking to go back to our roots, and I'm going to pick a Conan short story. But I decided, whilst I was thinking about, hmm, which one should I choose? I decided that I wasn't going to completely bear the responsibility of this one. So I've got my copy of the Complete Chronicles of Conan. Oh, I can hear this. I can hear the large book being opened and the pages being turned. I'm going to thumb through the pages. And Duncan, you're going to tell me when to stop. Okay. I've started. Stop. Damn it, Duncan, I picked the Hour of the Dragon. <laughs> That's the <laughs> only one we can't read. It's too long. Okay, go again, okay, go again. I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. Stop. The Frost Giant's Daughter, Duncan, it's too short. It's too short, Duncan. Okay, do it again. One more time. Then there's the charm. Okay, here we go. Stop. Red Nails. Perfect. Alrighty, it's going to be Red Nails. <laughs> One of the later ones, I think. It is indeed. Well, wonderful transition from Song of Achilles to Red Nails is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to all our wonderful listeners and members of this book club, please do let us know what your opinion on Song of Achilles is. If there's any Greek mythology scholars out there, particularly like to hear from you guys. Uh, yeah, write in. Tell us what you think. Did you love it? Did you hate it? I really would want to hear that perspective. I'm sure there's some people out here who maybe didn't engage with her prose as much. Absurd. Um, and let us know. Always good to hear from you guys. I'm going to fight everyone who doesn't like this book. Oh, and then your hubris will bring you down. That's right. I'll, I'll be fighting so many people that a river god will come to fight me. God, that was a really well-written scene. The one time Achilles is ever in danger, like, in his final fight. Like, this thing which is so crazy in the Iliad that he kills so many people in a river that it's blood angers the river god and it goes to fight achilles the idea that that's the only fight that ever challenges achilles right before he kills hector such a smart job i really didn't see it coming the book's so good that he keeps talking about it after we're doing the wrap-up <laughs> i've been your host Jordy bailey and i've been your other host duncan nickel so long till next time